This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, September 16th. Today, unintended consequences for people with chronic pain. The Americans most frightened by climate change. And a stolen drum locked away at a British museum. We have extensively described how the drug companies flooded the country with all these very powerful opioids and how the medical community embraced opioids as a way of treating chronic pain. But countless people have written to us here at The Washington Post and said, wait a second, I'm in pain, I need this medication. Joel Achenbach reports on health and science for The Post. For me, the opioid crisis was my medicine could possibly be taken away. It's going to be a fight just to stay alive. It's a real conundrum. And what this shows is that once you go down a certain path, it's not like you can just stop and turn around. Millions of people were put on these opioids to treat chronic pain, and they are dependent on them. And they, in many cases, are being told they have to taper. They're being told, okay, we're cutting your dosage back. So tell me about some of the people that you talked to for this story and the experiences that they've had, both in being prescribed opioids and what it's like for them now that their doctors are trying to cut back. Sure. Well, we went and visited Hank and Carol Skinner, who live in suburban D.C., and who were very welcoming to us, and they told us their story. And uh, Hank, um, he's 79 years old, has a fentanyl patch, and he also takes uh, some pills that have opioids in them. For chronic pain, he's had seven shoulder surgeries. He's really been struggling. And it's hard for him to sleep through the night because of all the pain he has. But his doctor is tapering him very slowly. And he feels like he's sort of a victim of this national change in attitude towards opioids. The regimen I have is a fentanyl patch. It was a godsend to me that allows me to uh, to have the wherewithal to get up and get going. So I saw him just in excruciating pain. Everybody thought it was A-OK to give these things. Now, all of a sudden, it isn't. We heard that story again and again. I talked to many people about it. I corresponded with them. People sent us long explanatory emails about their own situation. They were in a car wreck. They have Lyme disease or something like that. They need these drugs and They are anguished about the fact that, first of all, it's gotten harder for them to get them. And they feel like they're kind of being treated like drug addicts and it feels stigmatizing and they're anxious about it. They're worried that they're not going to be able to get them in the future. And many of them say, listen, you know, I have to have these things if I'm going to live a life that is endurable. Why can't I have the medicine that led me to, to live my life 
I did not abuse it. I just used, used it and, as prescribed. And it just, I, I just don't understand how, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people died illegal uses of the medicine. When there's nothing that can be done for your health issue, and they start to reduce your pain medication, it leaves you with really bad choices. So how did these painkillers become so prevalent in the first place? Well, that's a great question, and it goes back to the late 80s and early 90s when it became a kind of, I don't, I don't want to say trend, but it, many people in the medical community said, wait a second, too many people are in serious pain, and, and pain should be the fifth vital sign. Why are we denying them painkillers? These opioids work really, really well. Let's free them of this pain and not view opioids as if it's just like street heroin. When you say that pain should be the fifth vital sign, what does that mean? In the early 90s in particular, there was this growing belief among doctors that they needed to take pain more seriously. They asked their patients, how much pain are you in on a scale of 1 to 10? And in the process of that, they began embracing opioids in a way that in the past they hadn't. And the consensus was that you could prescribe these pills even for just a chronic ailment, as opposed to cancer or, you know, end-of-life treatment or a, a really severe surgery that, no, this could be for back pain. It could be for, you know, headaches or a bad ankle or b bad shoulders. That could be something that you were just prescribed month after month, year after year, and that it would just help you in the long term. Right. And the orthodoxy was that most people would not become addicted. Now, we know that the pharmaceutical companies marketed their drugs as having a low rate of addiction, even though the true rate was much higher. And what happened is that in the early 2000s, some of the researchers began to say, wait a second, these opioids really don't work very well for chronic pain. They, they're, they're not better than non-opioid, non-addictive types of medications. Because what we know now is that for a lot of these patients who take opioids long-term, even if they're using them legally, even if they're prescribed by a doctor, that they end up becoming kind of numb to them, that they have to be prescribed more and more in order to get the same amount of pain relief. That's right. And they could also become dependent on them. If they don't take them, they will go through withdrawal pain. And so there, you know, one of the experts we interviewed said they're in a kind of constant dance with withdrawal pain. They need to then take their next dose to keep it at bay. And in general, people who were on opioids were not thriving. If you look, if you just interviewed them, like, you know, are you working? Are you, you know, how's your life? They weren't thriving. And so the community started to turn against it. It took a number of years. But by then, you have millions and millions of people who are taking them, who are dependent upon them. So it's not like you could just unwind this. You have millions of people down that road, and they can't just reverse direction because of the nature of the drugs. So you describe this pendulum shift from doctors prescribing opioids to a lot of people in pain to the present state where doctors are really scared of prescribing opioids to their patients. 
what does that look like and what kind of guidance are doctors getting on how to limit their patients' access to painkillers? So what happened is in 2016, the CDC put out a new guideline on prescribing opioids for chronic pain. And one of the things they said is don't increase dosage above 90 milligrams. And many doctors misinterpreted that. And this has now been widely acknowledged in the community that many doctors saw that as a hard cap. And the problem is they already had patients who were taking more than 90. They were taking 300 or 400 or 500. So what the doctors did, they said, hey, I got I to gotta cut you back. The patients would come in and be told, you're going to be tapered and we're taking you down to a much lower dosage. And the CDC this spring said, hold on, this was, you've misunderstood what we're saying. We're saying don't increase people above 90. Every patient needs to be treated as an individual. And moreover, people should not be rapidly tapered. In other words, you know, just told, hey, from now on, we're cutting you back. It needs to be gradual. And in the case of the the gentleman we interviewed in suburban D.C., he is being gradually tapered. And I was told that if he can't handle the level he's at, potentially he could go back up again. But so that's a case where the doctor is closely monitoring how he's tolerating this new level, this lower level, this lower dosage of of fentanyl that he's on. I was really curious about the end of your story. So you spent a lot of time talking to the Skinners, and it turned out that, that, you know, while they're dealing with this issue of their access to pain medication, that they also had a nephew who overdosed from an opioid, from heroin. And I was curious if they talked about that, that it seems like for them they've seen the negative outcomes of both of these pendulum swings of people who don't need opioids having access to them, being addicted to them, and then people who do need them not having access to them. Yeah, they did talk about that. And I think that it's it really vividly shows two sides of this issue. On the one hand, you have someone who is prescribed a drug, who takes it as prescribed, who is currently being tapered and trying to tolerate that taper, but also has a family member who has died from a heroin overdose. They believe it was laced with fentanyl, this really deadly synthetic opioid. And I think what they would say is this is someone who was using an illegal drug. It was not prescribed. This is not, this is not someone who was treating pain. This is someone who had become addicted, who had succumbed to this, this scourge of drug addiction, which is obviously a giant issue in this country right now, drug addiction. And he was 26 years old. It's just a really tragic, tragic story. So in their mind, that's a different category. It's understandable that they would see it that way. That's two sides or two elements of this national phenomenon that there's there's no question that there is a connection between the overprescribing of pills in the 90s and the, the decade after that and the rise of this broader drug epidemic that includes heroin and fentanyl. It's kind of an organic evolution of 
the crisis because so many of those pills wound up being diverted to the street and people were just, you know, buying them and selling them as street drugs. Here we are with a, a country where close to 70,000 people a year are dying of drug overdoses and most of those are from opioids of some kind. Joel Achenbach reports on health and science for The Washington Post. On Sunday, the drug company Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy. They're the drug manufacturer that introduced and heavily promoted OxyContin back in the 90s. And they pushed the idea that opioids were a safe, effective, and relatively non-addictive treatment for chronic pain. The bankruptcy filing is part of an agreement to settle thousands of cases against the company for its role in the opioid crisis. Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation just polled more than 600 American teenagers about their views on climate change. That's Sarah Kaplan. And I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. It's the first poll of this issue, really, since we started seeing the surge in youth activism in the past couple of years. And what we found was pretty interesting. The vast majority of teenagers are completely convinced of the scientific reality of climate change, that humans are causing it. And they're pretty afraid. More than half of them said they feel afraid and angry about the ways the world is changing. I talked to a girl from Maryland who said that she feels like she lives in a dystopian novel where there's, you know, these hurricanes that are increasingly severe and increasingly frequent that are causing so much destruction. She sees wildfires happening out west. She sees... Her grandmother lives in Ellicott City, Maryland, which has had really severe floods um, years in a row. And she's like, it's obvious to me that the world is changing. And she felt like adults weren't doing anything about it. She said, I know it's going to be the fight of my life to make people make it stop. And more and more teens who say that they're angry and afraid are taking action. One in four teenagers said that they had done something to express their views on climate change, whether that's writing to a politician or attending a protest, or a lot of them have been attending these school strikes, these walkouts where they leave class and go to a protest or just stand outside their school and say, I'm not going to pretend that there's nothing wrong. Like, I'm going to demand action about climate change. So how did this movement of youth climate activism become so widespread so quickly? So it really started with this 16-year-old Swedish activist, Greta Thunberg. I'm just trying to be here and to make as much difference as I can. Last summer, she began protesting outside the Swedish parliament every Friday, skipping school to express her views that political leaders needed to take greater action on climate change. We are outside the Swedish parliament. I sit here every Friday. I am not a scientist. I don't have the proper education. I am only a messenger. And then she'd been doing that for a while, for many months, and she was invited to speak at a UN summit in the winter. 
where she gave this like pretty barn burning speech that really took the audience by surprise and also kind of took the world by surprise. A lot of people reacted to it. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. First dozens and then hundreds and then hundreds of thousands of kids around the world started following her in these strikes. And it's interesting, you'll go to the strikes and you'll see little girls with their hair and braids just like hers. You know, we've talked about before on the podcast, a girl from New York who's been striking since December. There were massive protests in March. You must be utter idiots if you're wondering why we're striking. Like, look around you. Where hundreds of thousands of kids walked out in countries around the world. And now there's this massive strike planned for this Friday ahead of a U.N. summit on climate action where kids in 150 countries are planning to walk out of school to demand action on climate change. Greta Thunberg, she is in the U.S. right now for this global climate strike that's happening on Friday. And you were able to talk to her. Yeah, so Greta actually sailed across the Atlantic because she doesn't fly. So she sailed on a zero-emission sailboat, which, you know, shows a level of commitment. And she's gonna she's been in the U.S. for a few weeks. She's going to be here for a while longer. But she was actually in D.C. last Friday and striking in front of the White House with a bunch of her supporters. But we talked to her about kind of, you know, what she sees happening with the youth movement now. Um, one thing that she said that I thought was really interesting was— identifying the difference between the way we talk about climate change in the U.S. versus the way it's discussed in Europe. It feels like many people are debating about the climate crisis, which they're doing everywhere, but it's like they even doubt the facts. It's like something you believe in or not believe in instead of being fact. She pointed out that in the U.S. we use the word believe a lot. And she was like, it's not something that you believe in. It's facts, right? And that in Europe, there's maybe more climate change is, is, is treated as a fact in the broader conversation in a way that it's not here. I thought that was a pretty astute observation. Another thing that we talked about that was really interesting was this idea that people often criticize Greta for using this very dire language. She talks about climate change as a catastrophe. She talks about adults taking away children's futures. I don't respond to the hate because if I would respond to the hate, then I, I would spend all my time doing that. So instead, I, I will just ignore them because they don't deserve my attention. But, you know, we had asked her, like, obviously you wouldn't be doing this work if you didn't believe in the possibility for change. So, like, are you hopeful? Are you an optimist? And she said she's not an optimist or a pessimist. She's a realist and that it's important to her to sort of lay out the reality of the situation, which is, as scientists, UN scientists have said, is that if we want to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to have to radically transform society in the next decade or so. And that's like obviously hard work. <laughs> um, we haven't done such a great job at it so far. <laughs> but I think that that, you know, seeing a 16 year old use that language and speak about something that is pretty scary with such kind of honesty and like a clear eyed assessment of the scientific reality is striking in anyone, let alone a teenager. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post.
What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing from Nairobi Bureau Chief Max Barak. We went to the Tana River Valley in southeastern Kenya to meet with the elders of a particular tribe called the Pokomo. And we went there at their request because they are on a mission to retrieve or get repatriated their most sacred object. And that item is a massive drum, but is sitting in a warehouse in East London owned by the British Museum and has been there for more than 110 years. The item is called Dingaji by the Pokomo. It's what's known as a friction drum, which means that you don't bang it. You actually rub a piece of hide that has been stretched across the top, and by rubbing it, that friction creates an echo within the drum, and it makes a huge sound, like a roar. So none of the... Pokomo who are alive today have seen this drum. But many of the eldest Pokomo, including Kumbi Awadesa, who's the head or the chairman of the Pokomo Council of Elders, had parents and grandparents who had heard it. But even those predecessors may not have seen the drum. So it could only be seen by certain people certainly could only be played by certain people. And when it was transported from place to place, everyone had to go inside and there was a curfew. And if those rules were broken, really terrible things could happen. Um, It could, you know, ruin a harvest or the person who broke the rules might find themselves ill and die. And its power derived from the secrecy and the set of rules around it. And that's why when the British came and stole it, it was such a loss for them. They told us that they own these items and that they are more than happy to loan them, but that there is no scope for the repatriation of any of their objects. The legend of Bingaji is still very much alive, though almost entirely with this council of elders. Young people don't know much about it. And one of the most impressive aspects of the story is that everybody talks about the sound That vibration, holy vibration, was so awe-inspiring that 
it was like being in the presence of a god. And so many of the elders believe that they would know that sound when they heard it. And Kumbia Wadesa, the chairman, said that even though he's blind, that if Dingaji was brought back from Britain to the Tana River, that he would know it for sure just by its sound. Max Barak is the Nairobi bureau chief for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And shout out to two listeners who recently left rave reviews on Apple Podcasts. Dodger Mama called our podcast, quote, a must listen. And who doesn't love a well-rung triangle? And Ken said that he too loves the podcast, quote, except for that blasted ringing triangle. You win some, you lose some. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.